I'm Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters, the podcast that brings intersectionality to life by exploring the hidden dimensions of today's most pressing issues, from Say Her Name and COVID to the war on CRT and the global rise of fascism. This idea travelogue lifts up the work of leading activists, artists, and scholars, and helps listeners understand politics, the law, social movements, and even their own lives in deeper, more nuanced ways. Folks, I want to welcome you to the very first installment of a new series we're working on here at the African American Policy Forum. As many of you know, we just finished a 14-state tour to get folks out to vote in the November midterms and to hand out books, books banned by anti-CRT legislation. On the heels of that incredible experience, we're proud to present our new book club. It's called Books Unbanned, from Freedom Writers to Freedom Readers Book Club. And each installment features a conversation between me and the author of a banned book. We'll break down why their work is so crucial to understanding America's racial history and why our opponents have labeled their ideas as forbidden knowledge. So that's what you'll hear on the show today. But before I play our first author talk for you, I want to share the reasons we're starting this club in the first place. As Black Voters Matter founder Cliff Albright said in the last episode of Intersectionality Matters, November's midterm election was the first one after an attempted coup in our nation's capital. So it's not an exaggeration to say that the election we just had was bound to be one of the most important ones in our lifetimes. That's because this election determined whether there would be any consequences whatsoever to attacking democracy like we saw on January 6th. And shockingly, despite those attacks, most predicted a red wave that would sweep into power, a wave that would elect many people who would rather break this nation than to share it with us. And as you know by now, those predictions were wrong. A wave of expected Republican victories in the midterm elections did not materialize. The maps are not awash in red. A lot of incumbents held on. Republicans could feel the momentum building. They could feel voter anger over inflation. And they thought this was going to be a typhoon. It was near euphoria. So like a red tsunami. A red tsunami. We know now that issues like abortion, the environment, and school curricula that teach America's racial history matter to people. They matter in a multiracial democracy. That means that, at least for now, white nationalist extremism is not the all-powerful force that it may yet become. So we've bought ourselves some time. But let's be clear. This fight is far from over. So what do we do next? For one, we need to keep the crucial conversations we were having before the midterms alive and well far into the future. We need to regroup and restate what we're fighting for and also what we're fighting against. We must continue to educate ourselves about the challenges we face and how they relate to our history if we want to stop an ugly past from repeating in our future. 
Only by naming our reality can we transform it. There's widespread agreement on that point, even among those who seek to silence us. It's no accident that over the course of our history, every push towards freedom has been met with fierce backlash. To keep folks under heel, a tyrant must control what they think and what they know. And there's no better way to do that than to control what people read. That's why it was illegal to teach enslaved people to read. That's why abolitionist materials were banned as seditious. And that's why a literate black person was a dangerous one. Enslavers knew that they were a grave threat to the established order. And as we watch critics of anti-racist education aggressively censor what literature people can access today, we see history repeat itself. Just like before, we see oppressive factions using censorship as a means of their self-defense. Forced illiteracy is the go-to move that appears like clockwork every time the country embraces the life-changing wisdom of anti-racism. However, we'd be remiss if we didn't point out another historic cycle that's currently repeating, and that's our assertion of our right to learn and to tell our own stories. Our resistance has been just as enduring as the instinct to suppress it throughout our history. I saw that instinct in so many of you when I was on the road, particularly in our young people who have just been credited as a major force in saving our democracy. Just listen to this student from our tour stop at South Carolina State University. Now, he wasn't up on the headlines. He didn't know about the book bans in his home state before we met him. Yet, even without knowing the fine details of the anti-CRT political battle, he instantly understood the motivations and the consequences of stopping black folks from learning their history. He spoke with our producer, Nicole Edwards. Hi, my name is Tavante Davis. So you picked up some banned books. Oh, of course. I got Dear Martin by Nick Stone, and then I have Stamped by... Jason Reynolds and Ibram X. Kendi? Yeah. <laughs> Why did you choose those books? Uh, Stamp, it talks a lot about racism and I wanted, I just want to know more about like my ancestors and what they overcome. Then Dear Martin, I guess me being as a young African-American man could teach me stuff. Did you know these books were banned? No, I did not know that until now. It don't surprise me though. <laughs> Why doesn't it surprise you? Because that's how I've been throughout history. Black people didn't really have opportunities to show as much as Caucasian people, I say that. Like, no racist stuff or anything, but it's being honest. Why do you think that stories that feature young black people are important for young black people to read? It's important because we have ancestors in history, too. At the end of the day, you want to know where you come from, what your ancestors have been through. There's no point of living if you don't know your history. Like, I mean, if you don't know about, let's see, Martin Luther King or Rosa Parks or Billie Holiday, you're missing out. They've been through a lot. Just for us to be able to walk and stand here and have freedom ourselves. So, I mean, it's good to know your history. And you're going to read banned books. Does it feel kind of cool? It does feel cool to read banned books because I'm reading a book that was banned. Now I'm reading it. You ain't taking my book. This young man's instinct is part of a great tradition of resistance. 
we know that many repressive laws have been on the books throughout history as a direct response to our ancestors' refusal to go without knowledge. We know during slavery, enslaved people would sneak off, go underground, risk 30 lashes or worse, because they knew then what we surely know now. Our liberation is as much a matter of who owns our mind as who owns our body. The Underground Railroad was the path to physical liberation. Reading was the path to mental liberation. That's why we launched our Books Unbanned from Freedom Writers to Freedom Readers Tour, to honor the legacy we inherit when we insist on reading forbidden works. And in the spirit of those who stole themselves to freedom through the Underground Railroad, we at AAPF are on a mission to offer book club events as safe harbors in our journey towards collective understanding for our multiracial democracy. At the first stop of this vital adventure, we're joined by Ibram X. Kendi. He met with me and our book club members, who we call Freedom Readers, to discuss his work, particularly the literature he's written for young people. We unpack Stamped, Racism, Anti-Racism, and You, which is for children 12 and older. And we also discuss Stamped for Kids, co-authored with Jason Reynolds for young people ages 7 to 10. Ibram is the founding director of Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research and is the youngest winner of the National Book Award for his nonfiction work, Stamped from the Beginning, the adult work that spawned the children's books. He is a virtual publishing house of books, and his upcoming release, How to Be a Young Anti-Racist, written with fellow banned book author Nick Stone, comes out January 2023. Stay with us to the very end to hear more about how you can join the next book club event. But first, I'm pleased to present our conversation with Dr. Kendi. Enjoy. Ibram, welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm so glad that we were able to do this. Thank you for being our primary conductor, our first conductor in our Freedom Readers Book Club. Well, Professor Crenshaw, I'm excited to do this with you. Well, look, you know, you've had a number of glowing reviews for all your books, but I especially was keen to talk about how often reviewers mention that they wish they had access to this kind of literature for children. Um, And it got me wondering what my own journey would have been had I had books like these, if they were readily available when I was growing up. I just, I don't remember reading books about us that were made for me as a kid. And it made me wonder, first of all, what kind of access to books about us and books that told the truth about us did you have access to growing up? And of course, Why is it and what is it that makes you create this literature for our children today? Well, I I remember when I was 10 years old or so, eight to 10 years old, my father and mother bought a series of Black biographies. I think Coretta Scott King at the time was uh, promoting this whole series of, of, of Black biographies. And almost every time my parents would buy one, I would, I would read it. 
it was as important to me as my Sega Genesis. Mm -hmm. uh, and I remember we were visiting a school. Uh, I think it would have been my third grade school. And those biographies and really learning about the history of anti-Black racism through those biographies, because each of those leaders had fought against it, caused me to actually ask uh, the prospective teacher who we were interviewing at this potential school uh, why she was the only Black teacher when pretty much all the kids were Black. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that was when I was in elementary school. But by the time I got to middle school and mm -hmm. high school, there weren't those types of materials for me. And I didn't read much, actually, particularly in high school. And it wasn't until I got to FAMU and in English 101 class, I was reading James Baldwin and Zora Neale Hurston and others uh, that I fell in love with, with reading. And so I think if I would have had these books, particularly in high school, they would have, they would have changed my life. I would have become a reader five, six, seven, ten 10 years earlier. And, and I, I completely um, identify with how the encounter with our image can produce interrogations as, as a young person. So I never had these books, but I do remember somewhat the opposite. I was a music student and the song that I was learning how to play was Mama's Little Baby Loves Shortening Bread. And there was... <laughs> There was a cartoon drawing of a pickaninny child, right, uh, eating some cornbread. And I just remember taking a crayon and just scratching it out. And <laughs> I took the book back to my music teacher, you know, white woman, and she opened it up to put it on the on the piano for me to, to play the song. And she went, oh. <laughs> she couldn't she couldn't say anything i mean mm -hmm. she couldn't say anything and i and it was it was a hint that i got that um yes there are these things that are contestable and yes people will not know what to make of it but it, it was i mean the way i scratched it out it was like ugh, i was <laughs> really angry about it um it, it it brings me to the question you know i i i want to get into the broader conversation about why so much of this work is seen as forbidden knowledge. But I want to start a little closer to home. I grew up with parents who were clear that they weren't going to spare me anything by not telling me the truth. Hmm. You know, our kitchen table was a place where we had to talk about what we saw in the world, regardless of what it was. We could ask the questions. But I do know that not all of my friends' parents necessarily felt comfortable or felt that way. What is the thought about how we go about introducing, explaining, historicizing for our babies and for our children what this history is out of which we come, what this thing is that we have survived. Because obviously you're writing this for kids, you're interpreting it for kids. So what do you say to parents about why this is important for our kids to know? Well, first, let me say that one of the reasons why I specifically have, have partnered with children's book writers 
uh, to, to produce or adapt books that I've written is because you have to have a certain skill set in order to craft a book that's going to be relevant and appropriate for children at different age groups. And you know, with, with that being said, I, I, I think that it is critically important for us to, to understand what kids are thinking about or experiencing as it relates to race at two years old versus mm -hmm. five years old versus eight years old versus 13 years old versus obviously 17, because that then is going to color how we educate the kids, how we respond to them, uh, what we talk to them about. And that's even one of the reasons why, Professor Crenshaw, that I, the book that I wrote, How to Raise an Anti-Racist, was, was structured, the chapters follow the developmental level of the child. Because I, I wanted parents to understand that by three years old, as an example, our kids, according to scholars, have an adult-like concept of race. They're already connecting skin color to qualities like dark skin color to dishonesty or to nastiness. By, by five years old, and especially six years old, our kids have internalized <laughs> those ideas. Uh, by seven and eight years old, they have the cognitive ability to express them. And so once they start doing that, parents are like, don't talk about that. Uh, teachers are like, don't talk about that. Uh, by 11 years old, they have the cognitive ability to recognize when they are the subject of racist practices. And so I, I think that allows us to, to have an understanding of, of what we need to be talking about. So the younger children, we need to be disconnecting skin color to quality. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, the, the older children, we need to be specifically talking about ideas that they may be internalizing. And, and obviously, the, as they get to in teenagers, to talking about actual structures and systems that they recognize are affecting their lives. Yeah, yeah. So for a lot of our uh, listeners, they, they may be unaware. One of the main arguments against all of our work, but, you know, especially this work for children, is that it's not age appropriate. That, that's one of the arguments. And the other is that uh, it makes kids feel bad. So starting with the age appropriate, because of course, you know, there there is this sense that it's not really a critique of, well, we've looked very closely and this isn't appropriate for five to seven-year-olds, but it might be appropriate for 13 to 15-year-olds. It's more just talking about race and racism, talking about histories, talking about um, the ways that people have been and are treated is not appropriate, period. So when you're trying to think about how to both create these materials in collaboration with people who have a strong background in making materials that are appropriate for children, is there ever a moment where the entire topic of talking about race is inappropriate for their ages? Uh, no. <laughs> and, and, and I think the, the, the very simple reason is I, I, I suspect most people understand how if you're two years old or three years old or seven years old, you can still be subjected to, to, to racism, right? You, you literally have uh, Black boys and girls uh, right now 
who are housing insecure because of the color of their skin of their parents, right? I, mean, I think people can understand that. What people don't want to accept is that you have five-year-old black girls coming home to their parents tonight saying, I wish my eyes were blue. What they don't want to accept is you have four-year-old white boys thinking that, that people who look like them have more because they are more. But that's actually happening. And there's widespread evidence uh, that that is happening with, with our youngest of kids. They, they don't, people don't want to accept that pre-teens, pre-Black teens are reporting five instances of racist discrimination per day. Like that's how much they're experiencing. And so for us as, 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 as teachers and parents and caregivers to ignore that persisting reality and say it's not appropriate, when the irony is that the conditions, the messages, the harm doesn't <laughs> discriminate based on age. Or age knows no right? boundaries. It right? knows no boundaries. And indeed, dark is ugly. That's a very simple idea that even a two-year-old can understand. And I don't think people also recognize that one of the reasons why racist ideas have spread over the course of history and even you know, over the course of the world is because they're simple. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. that's what that's that's their power, you yeah. know, and, and the, obviously with the work we're trying to do, the truth is not simple. <laughs> the truth is deeply complex. Yet we still have resistance to the idea that racism exists. It's not the anti-racism that creates racism. Racism is already there. And our babies are telling us this. I, I think a, a lot of times about the, the subtle message that even babies get from their parents. So here's something that happens to me more times than not. I'm, I'm flying on a plane. People in front of me have a little kid. Um, and the kid is up on their shoulder looking at me. For whatever reason, babies like looking at me. They're like, hey, ha, 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 just really enjoying looking at me. And I'm making all kinds of faces at them and stuff. And of course, the parent is curious, like, wow, who is this person that has, you know, little Susie, you know, gurgling and giggling with delight? And they turn around with a big smile and see it's me. This has happened more than once. And, and you see the shadow come over like, oh, my God. <laughs> my baby is connecting with this other and immediately the baby comes down you know the, the the fun time is over and I always wonder like where is this being encoded in this baby's vision of people in the world how many times does the baby get pulled away from the kinds of human encounters with the other that are, are are meant to tell them, no, this is not what you're supposed to supposed to be doing. And that's just the little things that happen to me. I'm I'm assuming that this happens over a course of all sorts of interactions that kids learn what it is that we're trying to get them to unlearn. And indeed, this is what scholars call nonverbal communication. Mm -hmm. And and scholars have found that for kids below about seven years old, nonverbal communication in that form is actually more decisive in shaping the racial attitudes of children than what parents are even saying. Yeah. And, and, and so people don't even recognize that actually when you're not saying anything, 
You're just, you know, not smiling when, when you see your child smiling. You're actually communicating something. So we talk when we're not even talking. And I think that's also one of the powers of, you know, in the insidiousness, really, of racism. Yeah. And we're talking about the uphill challenge of trying to unlearn that stuff, not simply be colorblind towards it, but to actually actively grapple with it and unlearn it. So on that, let's talk a little bit about what really is going on with the legislation across the country, with the claims that this kind of material is divisive, this kind of material harms children. And of course, you know, they're not really talking about our children. So I guess there's sort of a a range of ways that we can infer it. There are some people who are really ignorant and really believe that this is positively harmful, the true colorblind people of the world. Then there are those who probably are projecting their own feelings of discomfort around these topics and, and, and depositing them in children. And if you want to push back against anything that's racially justice oriented, you put kids in the mix because everyone wants to protect the kids. And then there's, you know, the possibility that that there is an ideological recognition that, as you point out, there's anti-racism and there's racism. And you, to the extent that you are able to pursue one, you are moving and decommissioning to a certain extent the other. And I'm sure there are many other possibilities, but what's your, you know, go-to take about what is at stake here, what is animating this so-called concern about saving the children? I think it's a, a reorientation of the existential threat. And, and so I, I think if in, in the summer of 2020, it, just an incredible number of Americans came to recognize, whether for the first time or for a long time, uh, through the vicious murders of, of Breonna Taylor and, and George Floyd and others, that racism was here and it's a problem. And I, I think in June of 2020, I believe 76% of Americans were polled as saying that racism was a big problem. 51% of white Americans, the first majority of white Americans that, that we know of, and so just like in, 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 in previous periods, whether it was the 1960s, where civil rights activists were, were able to facilitate a pretty significant segment of Americans to recognize that segregation and racism was, was a problem, or abolitionists in the 1850s who were, were able, to, after decades, to demonstrate that the existential threat was slavery. Uh, the, the typical response to that has been historically, and I think in the last few years, to change the existential threat. And what's striking is the same talking point, white supremacist talking point, has been used ever since enslavers or even Andrew Johnson created it, which is this idea that anti-racism is anti-white. It's the same talking point that, that they have been, they've been using. And I don't think 
Americans today who do not self-identify as white supremacists know that that's a white supremacist talking point. There was a, a long time white supremacist propagandist by the name of Bob Whitaker, who mm-hmm. wrote this white supremacist screed called The Mantra, mm-hmm. uh, which I think was published about 15 years ago. And it became, you know, went viral on the corners of the, the web. And the most popular line in that screed was anti-racist is code for anti-white. And, and then it was diversity and then multiculturalism and then critical race theory and then anything that can be related and, and recognized as uh, you know, seeking and trying to create justice for all is actually not trying to create justice for all and equity that it's anti-white. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's been so, it's been so effectively used to mass manipulate particularly white people, but even some people of color who are centering white people. And, and so they went to that same playbook again. Yeah. And that is, you know, in my frustrating days of just wondering where is everyone, it is just stunning to me that basically you could take Andrew Johnson's veto exactly. of the Civil Rights yeah. Bill AP 66, <laughs> right? This is giving Black people equal rights is discrimination against white people. I mean, the chains were still on our wrists and our ankles. And to say, taking taking those off and, and giving us basic civil rights discriminates against white people. You could take that argument and just set it right in the middle of this current controversy. And it it, it comes and performs the same way. So it, 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 number one, just shocks me that it never gets old, it never gets tired, it, it still works, it even works with people who should be allies, it works with people yeah. who are directly impacted. So one of, one of my constant questions is, how do we make the fact that we have been here before meaningful to people what do we have to do you know um i mean clearly one thing we have to do is prevent them from making it impossible for us to say and show that we've been here before so that's one of the goals of making racism unspeakable we are not able to say there's a pattern because we can't say that there's a there there but it also makes me think about um, making the historical analog. So we've got this Moms for Liberty group. Yeah. And th- they are based, in my view, in this movie, they are the daughters of the Confederacy. They yeah. get to do the same thing that was done, you know, after the Civil War. So, um, uh, I am wondering, number one, um, is it our own illiteracy about this history, this old, my, our own sense of that stuff was a long time ago, all this stuff is new? Is it the media's illiteracy? You know, I, I have big issues with their both sides-ism. Is it our leadership that doesn't know how to fight this stuff and would rather run away 
uh, from it? Is it all of those things? Is it something else? Why can't we get off of this this Friday the thirteenth narrative? You know, it just keeps coming back again and again and again. I suspect it's it's all of that, and I would add one other thing, which is that if you know, I've actually thought about this as I've tried to to work through over the last 15 years, if not longer, my own sort of internalized patriarchy. Like my perception, when I had a, a male supremacist perception or conception, in my mind, there was only two scenarios. Either men were gonna rule or women were gonna rule men, right? There was no conception you know, of shared power, right? There's no conception of, you know, of, of equality. And, and so I think if you have a white supremacist viewpoint, right, and you participated in all sorts of violence, and you even know about the violence, then part of your almost inclination is to believe that, that these folks who are really striving for shared power and equality are actually black supremacists, right? They, they want yes. to take over and they want to do, they want to extract revenge. And, and I could understand, you know, if, if we were in 1866, 1863, I could understand how and why some people could think that. But when you look at how black people responded to their freedom, we just wanted to be alone and build our churches and build our homes and build our lives. How black people responded to the end of the lynching era, how black people are responding today, we just want to be free. We just want to liberate ourselves. Mm -hmm. and, and so for anybody to think that, that, that Black people or any other oppressed group wants to like flip the script, you know, they, I think they're not a student of history. And, and I think that then reinforces. So because you don't know history, because you don't know that group, and because you're, you're, you're nurtured in your supremacist viewpoints, you imagine that the script is going to be flipped you also don't know that what's being fed to you has been used by the very people you claim you oppose from enslavers to lynchers to segregationists uh, to white supremacists today. So the illiteracy allows you to easily be duped. And so then the people who are duping you want to ensure that you continue to be duped. So they ban the books that would actually teach you. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that I was really struck by, I did a panel for Sundance a couple of years ago with Brian Stevenson. And Brian pointed out that unlike what happened here, where essentially the folks who won the narrative war were not the ones who won the material war, you know, here we have monuments to the Confederacy. We have military bases that are dedicated to them. When uh, when David Blight writes about the Civil War reenactments, it's the Confederate soldiers who get the big applause, you know, and the poor little Union soldier, particularly only the white ones, because they didn't invite the Black ones, you know, you know, goes hobbling by. And there's barely, you know, a hand clap for him. So, you know, the way this whole thing has been remembered you know, has given honor to a dishonorable position. It's given honor to those who would rather break the country. And he said, that is completely different from what you would see in Germany. You, mm -hmm. you don't see statues, <laughs> you know, to the third right. You don't see 
you know, a telling of the history that says, you know what, they were really right. They just lost. And he talks about the need for truth and reconciliation. And we know we've seen truth and reconciliation do some work in South Africa. Do you think anything like that is reasonable for us to expect? I think obviously in order for that to happen, we're going to have to get into positions of power, obviously, to, to, to make that happen. But, but I think if we're in those positions of power, uh, that something like that is gonna be absolutely critical you know, mm -hmm. and necessary. Cause, and I think part of what's happening in this country, and I actually wrote this piece in the Atlantic a few years ago that uh, argued that we are still living in many ways in, in an enslaver's republic. And, 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 and what I argued was that from the standpoint of the enslaver, they are seeking the unregulated, unbridled, unrestrained freedom to enslave. Yes. Uh, or in this case, freedom to lie, <laughs> freedom mm -hmm. to, to, to kill, uh, freedom to exploit, freedom to impoverish, freedom to oppress, and any restrictions on their ability to lie to children systematically, mm -hmm. they see as a rolling back of their freedom, right? Yes. And, yeah. and you know, from the standpoint of, of, of Black people, you know, historically, particularly enslaved Black people, we had a different conception of freedom. It was the freedom from oppression, right? The freedom exactly. from slavery, the freedom from, you know, systemic and persisting lies. And, and I think that's been part of the problem. Like the, the whole language of freedom has allowed people to enslave. Yeah. Have you been surprised, Ibrahim, about how quickly and without a lot of contestation, these anti-CRT, anti-divisive concepts, bills have just been taken up and reshaped what gets taught in a lot of our schools. I saw one of the one of the teachers who received a lot of complaints because he taught stamp for kids. Um, parents just complained so much and he ended up resigning. Yeah. Uh, and in other places, you know, um, Matthew Hahn, you know, lost his job for teaching a Ta-Nehisi Coates essay. I mean, the yeah. it goes on and on and on. I, I will say that one of the things I was surprised about is it was so difficult to get, you know, leadership to say anything about it uh, for a long time. And, yeah. and when they did, it was only when it sort of escaped the race frame and then it became clear this thing was going to burn up everything. Um, were you surprised by that? Are you surprised by it? On some level, I was surprised, but on many other levels, you know, I wasn't. I, I think the surprise was that maybe I'm just too much of an internal optimist, and maybe I take people at their word. Mm. And 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 the, that word is when you hear so many educators coming out of 2020 stating that they're going to be responsive to what their own students are demanding, because so students were organizing all of the country, you know, right. in 2020 to ensure that their 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 curricular offerings were 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 more diverse to ensure they were learning about racism 
and and they were pushing their parents and their teachers and their educators. So you know, I try to take people at face value that they were going to be responsive to their own students, and they were going to be responsive to the truth. And obviously, many sort of stood their ground, but when many just folded, and now these anti-CRT bills became almost the cover for them to not do what they really didn't want to do anyway. Yeah. You know, of course, that was surprising, but at the same time, not surprising, you know, at all. And, and the fact that, you know, it, it's, so, it's so amazing how a lie, uh, you know, about an historic, critically impactful field could go viral so quickly through the ignorance and really the amplification of the media who claim they're committed to truth. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, I bang my head about that a lot. <laughs> but then, you know, this is a bit of analogy. I was complaining to someone about something that was clearly a moment of intersectional oppression. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and he nodded and nodded and said, you know, someone has a theory about that. Uh, I think it's called right intersectionality. I mean, you can do work and still imagine a world in which the theories that you have and the patterns that you see are somehow interrupted or somehow this time is not going to play. Because if you don't have that hope, you almost can't do the work. You have exactly. to still have that part that's outside of what you kind of understand and know, but but you hope it doesn't happen that way. Well, Ibram, I would love to invite you to share a passage from your work. You you are our inaugural interview. So everything we do here, we're going to do again. So why don't you get it started? Okay, cool. No pressure. I'll, I'll, try, to, <laughs> I'll try to hook it up. So I'm going to read a, a passage from, from Stamped, Racism, Anti-Racism, and You, which I did with Jason Reynolds. And literally, this is how the book opens after a short introduction to really grab these teenagers uh, as, as we certainly would need to. Before we begin, let's get something straight. This is not a history book. I repeat, this is not a history book, at least not like the ones you're used to reading in school, the ones that feel more like a list of dates, there will be some, with an occasional war here and there, a declaration, definitely gotta mention that, a constitution, that too, a court case or two, and of course, the paragraph that's read during Black History Month, Harriet, Rosa, Martin. This (laughs) isn't that. This isn't a history book, or at least it's not that kind of history book. Instead, what this is, is a book that contains history a history directly connected to our lives as we live them right in this minute. This is a present book, a book about the here and now, a book that hopefully will help us better understand why we are where we are as Americans, specifically as our identity pertains to race. Uh Uh-oh, the R word, (laughs) which for many of us still feels rated R, or can be matched only with another R word, run, but Mm -hmm. don't. Let's all just take a deep breath, inhale, hold it, exhale and breathe out, race. Brilliant. 
Brilliant. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I am, first of all, just honored that that you were willing to be our inaugural uh, conductor here. I want you to know that as we were going out into the, our 14 states passing out books, people would see the book and just gravitate to it. It's one of those moments where I've been saying for a long time, I'm trying to figure out the jujitsu move, right? They, they're, they're, they're putting all this negativity to us. I want to figure out how to take that negativity and, and, and twist it around and seeing their response to this book, to 1619 and, and Critical Race Theory. I mean, I saw teenagers pick up Critical Race Theory. I felt a little guilty because I felt like, you know, of course, when something's forbidden, people are going to want it. I got to figure oh, yeah. out how to help them <laughs> to get through it. But it is doing, uh, in a small part, what we are we are hoping to to try to achieve. So thank you so much for your brilliance, your courage, your consistent clear voice in in speaking our truths to power, and and just for being such a, a colleague. I think I speak for, for many people in, in expressing my just appreciation for your work, for your inspiration, for your leadership, and even the, the work, inspiration, and leadership of, of this entire team. Well, I hope you got as much out of that conversation as I did. And this is just the beginning. Join us for free at the next book club event. Now, there are a few ways you can get involved. First, you can become a book club conductor and facilitate book clubs of your own, featuring books banned by anti-CRT laws. The AAPF team will meet with you and get you all set up. Check out our website, booksunbanned.org, to find out when the next conductor training takes place. Reading groups are popping up all across the nation, so another way to get in on the action is just by showing up. We call our meetings Freedom Circles. We encourage folks to join and talk about these incredible books and why their messages are so vital. Finally, you can become a Freedom Circle host. Moderate a conversation online or at a gathering place in your neighborhood. You bring your people and we'll match you up with a conductor to get the conversation flowing. Again, details are on our website, booksunbanned.org. We have one more thing on our calendar that you won't want to miss. Join us on December 7th with the youngsters in your life for our first story time. Bring your favorite pair of pajamas and get ready to listen and learn along with kids all over the country. Registration links are in the show notes below. Now, the same way a lot of you voted as a posse, well, we want you to read as a posse too. Because liberation is a collective project. Only when people vote together, read together, learn together, can we live free together. We know there's no daylight between racial justice and a multiracial democracy. And we know these issues matter to you too. So we'll see you at our next Freedom Readers Book Club. This episode of Intersectionality Matters was produced, mixed, and edited by senior producer Nicole Edwards with Kevin Minofu and the team at the African American Policy Forum. To support our show, subscribe, leave a review, and follow us on social media. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw. We'll be back soon.
Woke AF Daily is your much-needed wake-up call in a weary world. Get woke with my bevy of special guests from the worlds of news and politics, arts, entertainment, and spirituality. Where else can you start the conversation on the latest headlines and end on the importance of rest and mindfulness? Where else can you hear a sitting member of Congress one day and a practicing yogi the next? Where else can you take in the world filtered through the powerful voice of a black queer woman? Where else but Woke AF Daily with me, Danielle Moody.